Would you uh, join with me in prayer? Father, thank you for this day and for the grace that you'll give to us through your word. You'll instruct and encourage and lead us to righteousness for the glory of your name and for our ultimate joy. So, Father, would you ready our hearts and to receive this word and be changed by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Some of you perhaps have seen the, uh, there's a show called The Fear Factor. I've only seen it a few times. It kind of, frankly, wigs me out a little bit when I've seen it. But it's a show where I think for $50,000, uh, they put a, a group of contestants through things that would cause us great fear, like, you know, sitting in a box filled with snakes for 13 minutes. And if you can endure that, then you move on to how many cockroaches can you eat in, in 60 seconds. And, and, of course, you see these people going through what would be terrifying so as to get the $50,000. Now, it's pretty much a fundamental principle. If the goal is great enough, if the reward is great enough, you will endure unbelievable costs to gain it. Because that's driving you. I mean, you as parents particularly know that. I mean, if your child is in the second story of your home and it's on fire and, and you're outside and you discover the presence of your child in that room, you know, assuming the child was decent that week, you, <laughs> might, you, might, you might think, well, I'm going to let him sit there for a minute. It's a good lesson for him to learn. But you would endure unbelievable costs even at the risk of your own life, to save your child. Because the value of the child warrants the costs incurred. That's the principle. Now that is analogous to what Jesus is going to share with us in Matthew thirteen forty four. Your text says thirteen forty four to 46. I think there's enough in one verse. These little parables can pack a punch. And uh, there's enough in that one verse. And Jesus is going to show us that the kingdom is so valuable that no cost, no cost considered would be worth not embracing for the kingdom. For the sake of the kingdom, to gain it and to persevere in it is of such value that anything that you treasure right now would be worth discarding for that. If you would turn with me to Matthew 13, and, and then I want to set it at the end. I want to explain this, the scripture as it is, and then I want to try to make an application of this to the uh, desire that we have to plant a church in Rollsville. And uh, hopefully as we go along, you can see some connections. I'll draw some at the end. So Matthew 13, 44, uh, Jesus speaks. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, uh, this is, there's a string of seven parables all describing the kingdom of God in this chapter. And, and in this parable, Jesus is, I believe, speak, there are many interpretations on this parable. Uh, the one I'm going to advance to you is probably the most traditional, and I think it's the most clear and appropriate for the text. But that Jesus is speaking initially, at least, about the present reality of the kingdom. There is a kingdom, and it is present, and it is real. right? So the kingdom is. He doesn't say the kingdom was or will be, although they may have a part to play, but the kingdom is. That it's a present reality, and Jesus Christ has come to bring this kingdom 
in his life and in his death and through his preaching. We see this if you were to look earlier in Matthew chapter 4. You would have read from that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark's gospel adds uh, to repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is preaching a kingdom. It's the first thing he said that the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom of God is here. Now, this kingdom, of course, as you know, is not geographical, it's not military, it's not political, but it's a spiritual reality. The kingdom of God, as we understand it from Scripture, is really the glad exercising of God's reign and rule over the life of the one who has come to him by faith. So God's reign. So, for example, before I was a Christian, I lived as if I was the king, and I lived under my rule, in my decisions of what was right and wrong. And I had faith in myself and in my ability to be sufficient for the situations that confront me. So the kingdom of God is seen in the person who says, no, 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 I repent of self-rule and I submit myself under God's rule. And, and I submit to his reign and rule in my life, believing by faith that he's going to lead me to total joy and satisfaction in him. So that's what Jesus is preaching, this new kingdom. And he evidences this kingdom first by inviting people into it through faith and repentance. That's how you enter the kingdom, through faith and repentance. But he also evidences the kingdom in the miracles that he performed. You know many of the miracles. He raises the dead. He cleanses the the sick. He casts out demons. I mean, he is giving us a foretaste of what will come in full measure. So he's saying that if you see this, this is the old proverbial, you know, if you smell the apple pie from the oven, you know something's coming that's even greater than the smell. He's giving us a foretaste of his power. So he, he preaches the reality of the kingdom, he evidences it, but he shows us the mystery of the kingdom as he likens it to a treasure hidden. In other words, the kingdom is not so easily discerned and discovered There's a mystery about discovering this kingdom. The world doesn't see the kingdom as we see it. It's kind of like the wind. You you don't see the wind. You see the effects of the wind, but you don't see the wind. And likewise with the kingdom, you will see the effects of the kingdom on people through their repentance, their radical forgiveness, their pursuit of holiness. The world doesn't advance that. The world doesn't experience that. But the one who's come into the kingdom does. But the kingdom is not discoverable based upon man's ingenuity or ability to figure things out. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You know this when you preach the gospel. People are are bothered by it. It's a stumbling block to the Jew because they think they're morally prepared for it. They don't need Jesus to die for their sins. Look at how good my life is. I'm not as bad as the rest of the people. They're offended by that. The Greek or the, or, or the stereotype of wisdom says, this is foolishness that you want me to believe in some battered, bloodied, beaten body up there. Clearly, education is the way to go. And so the gospel of the kingdom is foolishness to the world. They don't see it. In fact, the Pharisees even came up to Jesus in Luke 17. They said, Pharisees asked when the kingdom of God would come. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed as militaries or, or political changes. He says, um, Jesus said, you won't say, look, here it is or there it is. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So this is the mystery of the kingdom. Now, 
The mystery of the kingdom is that it can be discovered, but it has to be revealed to us. You know, if you th- let me explain the difference between a Christian and a religious person. See, many in the church today are, in fact, religious. And to be religious means that you're abiding by a certain set of teachings. You may be coming to church. You may be tithing. You may be in the ministry. But that's not necessarily what a Christian is. A mark of the religious person would be one uh, who has confidence in his knowledge of God. He has confidence in it. And, and that, that he has found God and that he cannot understand why other people haven't found God. He doesn't understand why people don't embrace God like they embrace God. Uh, the Christian, though, is different. The Christian remembers when he didn't consider the kingdom to be of value. The Christian remembers that, that he once didn't see God as that significant. The Christian is humble. The Christian is grateful. The Christian's overwhelmed with this idea that I have been found by God, even though I'm, I may have been looking. Carol and I were talking the other day, uh, last week, and we just were talking about what are we going to say to God when we see him? It's a great question I like to ask myself over and over because it's going to occur, and so I want to be prepared. And and we're just talking about it, and we're discussing how so many people are going to say, well, I want to ask him about predestination, or I want to ask him about election, or pull out some theological, real snarly, kind of difficult question. And I think as we were talking, I thought, I don't think that will be the question we give to God. I think when you and I see God in his absolute radiance, and you see yourself now for who you really are in light of God, I think the question is going to be, what am I doing here? Why would you even draw me to yourself? How could I have ever come to understand? Do you marvel that you understand the kingdom? I mean, do you just scratch your head? Does it not humble you? I mean, I think about in Matthew 13, 11, what precipitates all these parables is Jesus says to the disciples, he says, to you have been made known the secrets of the kingdom of God, not to them. Do you realize that? Are you overwhelmed with this mystery of the kingdom to which your eyes have been opened and you understand? Because the religious person will just put that as a feather in their hat. The Christian will be on his face, marveling. Why me? So that's the first thing. We see this mysterious kingdom. It's hidden in the field for God's purposes and pleasure and glory. That is the way it is. But then look what happens when this man finds, we assume he's a farmer. Perhaps he's renting a field. Perhaps he's plowing the field and he... Maybe the, the shovel hits something hard, and it, boom, something underneath there. So he digs it out, and there's a treasure. He immediately sees the worth. It could have been gold, coins, silver. We don't know what it is, but let's just say that, that he immediately sees its worth. I mean, you can imagine the coins going through his fingers. I mean, he immediately is excited about this treasure. Now, the treasure, I I would argue, is not simply in the coins, but it's in the discovery of these coins. I mean, it, it it may not be, of course, we may want to shift back to this with the state of our economy, but back then, there were no banks, and uh, the Israel was a place of multiple and numerous conflicts, and so a rabbinic law would state, or saying, would say the only safe place for money is in the ground. 
And so people would bury their possessions, their gold, their money in the ground. And, uh, and that was safe. And uh, so to, to everybody, or many people did it, but to find it was a rarity. I mean, to find it would be like winning the lottery. To come in and find this treasure and find it to be of great worth. And Jesus is likening the kingdom, the invitation to join God in his kingdom, to be like winning the lottery. It is amazingly rare. We ought to be humbled. That's what I was just speaking about. But the value of being in the kingdom is immense. It's beyond measure. This man was going to sell everything he had in order to get the kingdom. So that gives you a picture of the value of it. Now, what is the value of the kingdom? Well, of course, Jesus doesn't explain it here. You know, we see this parable as teaching a principle and a truth, but we have to go to other scriptures to find what the value of the kingdom is. And the value of the kingdom is just varied. It's, well, we'll have all of glory to experience it, but let me give you some examples of what makes the kingdom so valuable. First would be this idea of receiving a true forgiveness. You know, the kingdom, coming into the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ means that you have been forgiven by God because of Jesus Christ has borne your sin and he's borne the righteous punishment of God for that sin. That's that's part of the benefit. That's part of the value of the kingdom. You don't have to look over your shoulder anymore. You don't have to worry about what is God going to say to me in the end. There is a forgiveness that you experience, a true and legitimate forgiveness. Now, folks, this, if you've lived long enough, this is wonderfully, emotionally, psychologically freeing. To know that you will not, because of Christ, never have to suffer a righteous judgment for your sin ought to, you ought to feel as if the fetters, the chains have been cast off you. You may want to drag it along. He's not dragging it along. Satan may want to bring it up to you and remind you of your guilt and your shame and your disgust, but, but God is not doing that. That's the value of the kingdom. Listen to what Martin Luther said, and, and Martin Luther uh, was a bit salty. So I'm asking you to hear this quote in light of that. Got you interested now, don't I? (laughs) He is arguing, and when he speaks about the law and the gospel, he's going to be speaking to the person who fails to live in light of the gospel. They believe the gospel, but they want to live as if they're still accepted by God based upon the law. And so that's that's his distinction here. He says this, It's the supreme art of the devil that he can make the law out of gospel. He says this, If I can hold on to the distinction between the law and the gospel, I can say to him any and every time that he should kiss my backside, even if I sinned, I would say, should I deny the gospel on this account? Once I debate about what I have done and left undone, I am finished. But if I reply on the basis of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins covers it all, I have won. What he's saying here is the value, the present value of the kingdom is rooted in you have been forgiven in Christ. That when you think of the kingdom, you think of Christ, I have been fully forgiven in him. Think about the guilt that you've just been dragging behind you, what you should have done, what you shouldn't have done. That's what Luther's saying. Don't go back to appealing to God based upon the law. Appeal to God based upon the gospel. 
It will free us. We will be a different people. We will be filled with joy and satisfaction. We will find him to be unfathomably worthy of everything. If you don't see that, then you're always going to be working toward God. Secondly, another value of the kingdom is acceptance with God as your father. That, that, that now you were once aliens and strangers. You once were enemies of the cross, enemies of God. But now in Christ, you have been reconciled to God. That God now has, in fact, it says in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In Jesus, union with Christ, we have an adoption with the Father. Now, folks, this is to dwell upon. Let me give you a startling quote by J.I. Packer. He's a, a British theologian now teaching out in Canada. And it comes from his book, Knowing God, and it's a very startling quote, but it's very helpful. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Do you consider God as your father, that perfect loving father? This is the value of the kingdom. Being in the kingdom means he's your father. I mean, he loves you passionate to you. Fathers, as much as you want to pour out your last drop of blood for your children, can God do any less than you? It's a profound, valuable kingdom. Thirdly, a value of the kingdom is being associated with the church. That may sound crazy to some of you, but the church is a gift of God. It has been birthed by the kingdom. It witnesses to the kingdom. The church is a pilot plant of the kingdom, if you will. The church now has been given the unfathomable responsibility to display and to declare the wisdom of God to the world through our relationships with each other, through the way we walk towards godliness and holiness, through the sacrifice we make to one another. We are to be that little light, if you will, displaying how wise God is by the way we love one another. And to be part of that, to be part of the outward witness of God's Outgrowing kingdom is, I think, quite a value. Uh, Fourth, uh, a value of the kingdom would be in the personal and the promise of transformation. That when you're in the kingdom of God, God has promised to conform you to the image of a son. That, That as we behold Christ, we are changed from glory to glory to glory that he's going to give you the Spirit of God, that he's going to gift you with the gifts of the Spirit. You're going to be useful for the kingdom, that your life will have matter, meaning, and purpose and value as being part of the kingdom. Uh, another blessing is the security of the kingdom. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that the kingdom is permanent and unshakable, that you are part of an unshakable kingdom. This is unbelievable in terms of its value. That means that even though trials and tribulations may come into your life, they're going to be designed by God to achieve a purpose in your life that you will thank him for it later. I mean, just think of that day, the trial that you're in right now, and yet in the hand of God, because you're a member of his kingdom, he's going to use that for good purposes. So that when you're on the other side, you will thank him for what change took place because of that trial. That is a great value. Another value of the kingdom is the promise of eternal life. And folks, the philosophers laugh at this. They think it's a joke to, to rest and count on living forever with God. 
They say it's an opiate for the masses just to keep them subjugated. They say it's a man-made invention just to give meaning and purpose to life. But the resurrection of Christ confirms to us, for the believer now, for the kingdom dweller, the resurrection of Christ confirms the reality of the kingdom to which we'll go. So this is the value of the kingdom. The value of the kingdom. This kingdom is mysterious. It's discoverable by God's grace. But the kingdom is valuable. Do you sense the value of the kingdom? Do you appreciate it? Do you treasure the kingdom? Or maybe I should ask, what do you treasure? What do you treasure most? I mean, the religious person will define their faith by rules and regulations and how they keep them. The Christian will define the faith by the treasure that Christ is. Is Christ your treasure? What do you treasure most? What do you think about most? What do you worry about the most? What do you seek to protect the most? Folks, this is, I know, or it should be, if you're with me, this is right in your wheelhouse. I mean, is it a child? Is it a spouse? Is it money? Is it a job? Is it the pleasure of sex? What is it? What are you most passionate about? When you see the kingdom and you see Christ of the kingdom, what are you most passionate about? Jonathan Edwards uh, was a, uh, you've no, known the name, I've said it before, just want to remind you, he was a pastor up in New England in the 18th century. And um, he wrote some profound things about affections and passions and pleasures. His book, Religious Affections, is, is a difficult read, but a very good read. And let me just quote to you, and I think you'll find this convicting, but hopefully reorienting. And so hang with me, if you will, for just a minute. They tend to write run-ons. Now, they probably think we can't form a sentence, but it, it can go on for a little bit. So just hang with me, if you will. He says this. He says, if true religion lies much in the affections, hence we may learn what great cause we have to be ashamed and confounded before God that we are no more affected with the great things of religion. He's speaking religion as a, as a good thing. He says, how common is it among mankind that their affections are much more exercised and engaged in other matters, in things which concerns men's worldly interests, their outward delights, their honor, reputation, their natural relations. They have their desires eager, their appetites vehement, their love warm and affection, their zeal ardent, in these things, their hearts are tender and sensible, easily moved, deeply impressed, much concerned, very sensibly affected, and greatly engaged, much depressed with grief at losses, and highly raised with joy at worldly successes and prosperity. But how insensible and unmoved are most men about the great things of another world? How dull are their affections? How heavy and hard their hearts in these matters? How can they sit and hear of the infinite height and depth, and length, and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of his giving his infinitely dear Son to be offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of men, and of the unparalleled love of the innocent and holy and tender Lamb of God, manifested in his dying agonies, his bloody sweat, his loud and bitter cries, bleeding heart, and all this for enemies, to redeem them from deserved eternal burnings, and to bring to unspeakable and everlasting joy and glory and yet be cold and heavy and insensible regardless. Where are the exercises of our affections proper, if not here? What is it that does more require them 
And what can be a fit occasion of their lively and vigorous exercise if not such a one as this? Can anything be set in our view greater and more important? If we ought ever to exercise our affections at all, then they ought to be exercised about these objects which are most worthy of them. But is there anything which Christians can find in heaven or earth so worthy as the objects of their admiration and love, their earnest and longing desires, their hope and their rejoicing, or their fervent zeal as those things that are held forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there anything of greater value? I would say, if we were honest, that there are. And I think that leads us to repentance and sadness. See, when you look at this parable, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. If you have discovered the kingdom, have you valued it? Do you value it? Are you repentant of not valuing it to the degree that you should? Can you not seek to ask for grace to value it more? Look at what this man did. It says he found this treasure and covered it up, and in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, let me just deal with one thing that is a sideline issue, because I know that many of us Westerners struggle over this. He finds this treasure, right, and he's playing with the coins. He buries it up, and he makes a sweet offer to the guy that owns the field to get the treasure, and we're thinking, that's kind of immoral, isn't it? I mean, that's not. Shouldn't we post signs around the village, lost, money found, and try to find its original owner? And we think that this is somehow an immoral action. But let me just try to dial you into the context a little bit. Uh, There was another rabbinical saying that would say, um, scattered fruit and scattered money belongs to the one who finds it. Kind of a precursor to finders, keepers, losers, (laughs) weepers. I just made that up. Um, So you have a field and there's a treasure in it. Now, if the man who owns the field, if it's his treasure, he won't sell it to the man. So that's clear. So it has to be someone else's treasure. Now, how long has the treasure been in there? 50 years, 100 years? How many owners of the field have come and bought and sold the field? Four, five, six owners? Whose money is it? And that's why they said, if money is found, it goes to the finder. What the man did, though, he bought the field to establish a legitimacy to have the treasure. But in buying the field, he sold everything he had. The parable isn't trying to deal with the morality of this. I just wanted to deal with it because I know many of our minds go there. The parable is not about buying the kingdom. You cannot buy the kingdom. That's clear throughout Scripture. What I think the main point is of this whole thing is that the value of the treasure, when understood, that's why I just went through what the value was, when the value of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is understood, there is nothing in comparison to that value. And so all those things that you and I are passionate about are worthy of sale to get the kingdom, to persevere, to enjoy this kingdom. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the reward of grabbing the kingdom is worth getting rid of everything to get it. Now, for some of you, that feels awkward. It feels awkward that I am going to try, that my motivation to serve God in the kingdom is what I'm going to get out of God. It seems mercenary. Now, that that thought was given expression by a philosopher 
uh, by the name of Immanuel Kant, who said that if an action is done with the hopes of some interest or reward, it makes the object immoral, or it makes the action immoral. In other words, if I do something for somebody with the hope of getting something from them, it is immoral. It's an inappropriate action. So he put forth this idea of you ought to be a disinterested giver. So if I'm going to do something nice, I should have no interest in it. And that makes it moral. Well, the scriptures would not affirm that thought. The scriptures encourage us to want to receive from God. Not that our highest joy is what we're getting from God, but that we're getting God. In other words, he says, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please God. For anyone who believes in God, for anyone who comes to God, must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you see what he's saying? That if we're going to please God, we have to believe that he, re- will, he will reward us for seeking him. In other words, he's cultivating in us that God, out of the graciousness of his character, wants to bless us as we seek to serve him and as we seek him. You see this in the ministry of Jesus. In Hebrews 12, it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus had an object. There was joy, glory for God, glory for himself, and that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Paul, the same thing. Philippians chapter 3, he says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul's expecting, get rid of these, I get Christ. Seems to be encouraged in scriptures. You see, store it for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 6, encouraging us to think about what we gain from God, not the things of God, but God himself. In fact, when Carol and I were contemplating going overseas, we were really struggling, should we do this? Should we go overseas? We had two children. We had a a thriving accounting business. Life was sweet. Family was nearby. It was actually one of my motivations for going overseas, (laughs) if truth be told. Best thing for our marriage, wasn't it, honey? So I'm going to be leading a Bible study in the Naval Academy, and I was praying about this and wondering, should we get all this stuff? And uh, I opened the scriptures, and I was reading through Matthew, and I came across Matthew 19. Listen to what Peter says to Jesus. He says, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? He's asking, what will we have? Jesus didn't rebuke the question. In fact, he encouraged that. He said, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, Carol, by the way, that night went home, independent of me, praying the same prayer, and ended up reading the same verse. Just God bringing us to a place that we needed his grace. The point of it is that I'm trying to make is, folks, for the, for the religious person here, The religious person is always marked by thinking more about what you've done for God than what he's done for you. 
the religious person's obedience is marked by a sense of duty. In other words, that, that I'm supposed to do this. And so their obedience is usually born out of duty and it leads to self-righteousness if you're effective or despair if you're not really effective at living obedient lives. Uh, Or the religious person's duty is born out of fear. I have to do this so that God will be good to me. That's religion. That's not Christianity. Christianity, our obedience is affectionate obedience. It's delightful obedience. We love him, and so we want to be obedient. The the Christian is overwhelmed with the value of the kingdom, so my obedience in the kingdom is not a struggle, it's a pleasure. It's not that we don't battle with sin, but what, what leads us in the battle is we're more excited to please him than to please ourselves. We want to live under his rule. See, the Christian life is constantly laying oneself down. It's constantly dying. Why? Because the Christian knows that there's something that follows death, and that's life. We are people of the resurrection. And so our obedience is born out of a desire to receive from God all that he has for us. Our obedience is born out of delight and satisfaction in God, not out of white-knuckling things. This is why David Livingston, the missionary explorer in Africa, he was given much credit for all the work that he did. And here's what he writes. He says, for my part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. But is it a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful healthful activity, consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope, and a glorious destiny? He goes away with the word in such a view. In other words, away with you thinking I have sacrificed anything. He says, away with such a thought is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it's a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, and danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of life may make us pause. It may cause our spirit to waver. It may cause the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. So as kingdom dwellers, we don't make sacrifices. Why? Because of what we're getting. We have a kingdom that is both initiated, inaugurated, and it will be full and complete, and nobody will think, I gave more than I got. That's why... Charles Spurgeon, when he preached on Matthew 13, 44, he titled his sermon, The Great Bargain. It's a great bargain. This life, for what he's going to give us, doesn't make us mercenaries. It makes us faithful to be obedient in our suffering. So how does this apply to a church plant? Well, planting a church is going to come at costs. There's going to be financial costs. These things are not always cheap. And I'm asking you to consider the treasures that you may overvalue, what use could they be for the planting of a church in Rollsville? The friendships you have here, for you to think about tearing away, because we want to send 15 to 20 families, to think of tearing away from some of the friendships would be a great cost to you. But I would simply say, you will have those friendships in great measure in glory. But, but to tear them away so as to establish new friendships with the plant team and the people of Rollsville 
It will be worthy. It will be a good bargain. Those of you who are just time control Nazis, you know, you're just, your life is filled. There is no room to do a church plant. May I ask you to consider the cost of getting rid of some of those good things to do some of the best things. You have a kingdom that's far greater than your ability to control in time. Those of you who are comfortable here, and you really don't want to change. It's established. You know what you have. It's comfortable. And it would be of great cost for you to go drive to Rollsville to plant a church. Just spread this glorious, valuable kingdom. I would ask you to consider the glory of the kingdom. To embrace these costs. To be made uncomfortable. So as to make people comfortable in the kingdom. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a high charge to plant a church. We should both be, ex- well, this is the way I am. I'm really excited about it. And I'm really scared about it. I mean, it really, it's a big thing we're doing. We're not building, as Daniel said, a grocery store. I mean, we are planting a church that is going to preach the kingdom of God, that is going to see, by God's grace, the lost come into faith to enjoy this kingdom that I'm speaking about. So I would simply ask you to go back to this verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has. Think of all the things. So when he went to sell that stuff, you know that stuff had been his main focus in life. And he chucked it all when he saw the kingdom. What do you need to move away from, to experience the joy of the kingdom. I would ask you to consider that. Let me pray for us, and then I'll call the elders and servers forward. Father, thank you uh, for your patience with us, as even your own children still love the trinkets. We love the stuff of this life. We love it, Lord. We love it. We love it more than the one who's given it all to us. Father, would you forgive us? And with uh, the forgiveness that we are experiencing, would you give us greater passions for Christ and his reign in our lives? Father, would you make us valiant, excited, balanced in terms of what we want to get rid of to persevere and gain this kingdom? Father, particularly with this church plan, Lord, we have submitted this to you for, for years, and we just ask for you to direct and lead and guide. We don't presume upon you that it must look this way, but we do believe that you will reward, you will guide, you will give us all that we need to do that all that you've placed before us. So, Father, stir up the hearts of your people sitting before me and move them to find a growing love, affection, value in this kingdom. And then, Father, move them in the direction that you would have them. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.